0: Good morning, family. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from Psalm 88. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in a burden? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? We have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, we come now to God's word, and if you can take out your Bibles, we're going to have a look at Psalm 88. It's the week before Easter, and uh, as you'll see in a couple of minutes' time, Psalm 88 is a very appropriate psalm as we prepare our hearts and our minds uh, for the Easter weekend. So it'll be a great, great help to me if you can take out your Bibles or get it on your cell phone. Psalm 88, uh, it's right in the middle of the Bible, and it'll be a great, great help to me if you can have that open in front of you. Now, you're going to be very disappointed if I don't ask you to look at your cell phone and uh, check that it's on silent, And you'll be very disappointed if I don't ask you, if you have a small child or baby with you who gives you any trouble, please feel free to slip out uh, during the sermon. I'm sure it'll help the people around you uh, if your child is giving you particular difficulty. Well, let's pray, and then we'll come to God's Word. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you are a speaking God We thank you that you have spoken through your Son, and you have spoken through your Word. And we pray again, Lord, that as we read the Scriptures, particularly in these times and these days in which we live, that you may speak to us, that we may hear your voice. We pray that your Spirit may take your Word and apply it to our hearts and to our minds. And above all else may draw us closer to Christ. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now before we dig into the psalm, I want to go down two side roads. The first side road is to answer the question, what are the psalms? You may be new to the Christian faith. You may be new to the Bible. You may not know the psalms at all. So the first question is, what are the psalms? Well, the psalms were the original prayers and hymns and songs of the Old Testament church, Old Testament believers. And they wrote down their songs, their prayers, their hymns. And they were varied. So they are prayers and hymns of thanks and praise and worship. They are psalms of joy. There are also psalms of, of guilt and psalms of confession and psalms where the psalmist is wrestling with sin Still other psalms deal with discouragement and depression and doubt. So what you find in the psalms and the 150 psalms is really a mirror of the soul. It's kind of a mirror of the human heart because you'll find every human emotion expressed here in the psalms. It's a mirror of our struggles, of our joys, of our anger, of our hope, of our despair, of our our worship found here in the Psalms for our benefit. And especially it's, it's, a, it's a written record of believers who are struggling or praising or worshipping God and they dialogue with God as they do so. See, I think one of the differences between you and me when it comes to prayer Is that in the Psalms you will find every possible emotion, every possible discouragement and doubt. I think the difference so often is that when we struggle with these things, we don't tell God, we just clam up. But what the psalmist does is the psalmist expresses his feelings, his emotions. It's almost an anatomy of the soul. It exposes every possible human emotion that we experience. And that's why it's so important that we read the Psalms and we know the Psalms. Second side road is how can we benefit from the Psalms? Well, as I've just said, we can, we can use the Psalms, we can learn from the Psalms, because they teach us a great deal about, about God, about God's nature, God's purposes, God's character teaches us about ourselves our joys our struggles our sins our mixed motives so we can use the psalms to express our worship and praise and thanksgiving we can use the psalms to confess our sins we can use the psalms they often give words to our own personal struggles i often i often use the psalms when I don't have the words to express what's going through my mind, my heart, and I turn to a particular psalm that I know will express what I'm feeling. So it's a model of prayer, and it's a prayer itself. Let me encourage you to to read through the psalms. Why not, during this period of quarantine, don't you perhaps read two psalms a day? and uh, make notes about what the psalm is so that next time when you're going through those feelings, those emotions, those experiences, you can turn to those psalms which will give you the words you want, you need to talk to God. Well, there are our two side roads. Let's dig into Psalm 88 and I really, really do hope that you have your Bible open in front of you. Psalm 88, which was read to us just a moment ago, is without doubt... The darkest of all the psalms. It's probably the darkest passage in the whole of the Bible. So what are we to make of it? The words are bleak, they're grim, they're without hope. There's no relief, there's no, there's no resolution at the, at the end. There's no, there's no hint of joy or hope. You know, many of the other psalms start in despair, but then end in hope. There's, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but not with Psalm 88, one author, speaking of Psalm 88, said, The words of Psalm 88 are so dark, so desperate, and so lacking in any perceivable hope that it almost takes your breath away. You can't, be, you can't but be touched by its sadness, the pain that, that has engulfed the writer. So you look at the psalm and you say to yourself, Why would anyone write this psalm? In fact, it was a song. Notice there in the title, it's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master. I mean, why would anyone want to sing this song? Certainly wouldn't make the top ten or the top hundred. Question, why did why did God allow this psalm to be to be written? Why did he why did he allow it to be included in the Psalter? Was it a mistake? Notice the last verse, Psalm 88, verse 18. Notice there, right at the end. Let me paraphrase. Even though you've taken my friends and family from me, I realize I do have one friend. I've looked around. His name is darkness. Yes, he's become my closest friend. And that's the end of the psalm. There's no hope, there's no resolution, there's no light. It's about as dark as you're going to get it. Well, let's dig into the psalm. We're going to have two principles. And uh, you will know well by now that the first principle is by far the longest. All right, we're going to have a look at a grief suffered. And then we'll look secondly at a grief born. First of all then, have a look at chapter, or not chapter, Psalm 88 verse 1. The first thing we notice is a grief Suffered, and the first thing we notice in verse one is that this psalm was written by a believer. He believes that his God is a God who saves. Notice there, verse one: "O Lord, God of my salvation." The writer of the psalm is not an atheist. He's not an agnostic. He's not a man struggling with doubt. He's not struggling. He's not backsliding. There are other psalms like that, but not Psalm 88. No, he's a believer. He's a man of faith. He knows that there's a God. He knows that he's God saves. He understands the gospel. And yet apart from that first line, the rest of the psalm is racked with pain, with, with sadness, with dreadful, dreadful loneliness. Notice the things that he struggles with. He struggles with physical suffering. Verse 3. My life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Now, we have no, we have no record of the historical context of the psalm. We have no idea what the background is. Some of the psalms tell you who, who wrote the psalm and also why they wrote it. We told who is writing the Psalm, Psalm 88. It's the Psalm of the sons of Korah. They were the Levites who served in the temple. But we have no indication of the historical background or the context. What, however, is clear is that the psalmist is suffering physically. He cries out, verse 1, day and night before God. Perhaps it's old age, perhaps it's illness or disease so that he feels terminal or dying perhaps it's the original COVID-19 notice verse 3 my life draws near the grave near to Sheol I'm counted among those who go down to the pit I'm a man who has no strength verse 8 I am shut in so that I cannot escape perhaps that's a quarantine verse 9, my eyes grow dim through sorrow so there's a physical suffering but there's also a soul suffering notice verse 3 again, for my soul is full of troubles verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves so clearly what we have here is someone who is not just suffering physically, he's suffering spiritually, his soul is suffering his heart is suffering. Perhaps, he's, perhaps he remembers his sin. He thinks back to, to, the, to the days before he was a believer or perhaps even after he became a believer. He remembers his failures, his brokenness. He feels culpable. He feels guilty. He feels the weight of God's, God's disapproval or God's anger or God's wrath for his sin. Perhaps he's an older man with all kinds of regrets that he remembers in the middle of the night. Notice also, there's not just a physical suffering and a soul suffering, but there's a suffering of loneliness. If ever there was a lonely man, it's the author of Psalm 88, one of the sons of Korah. Verse 4, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. You will know that because of my job, I'm often involved in death. And uh, sometimes I have to accompany family members to go to identify the body. It's a pretty grueling exercise. It's not my best. And it's always a shocking thing to see the body of someone who up to now has been breathing and talking and, and laughing and walking, now dead and lifeless. What always strikes me, it almost haunts me, is that when you die, you die die alone. You're on your own on that steel table. No friends, no family, no loved ones, no network, no social media, no internet. You're on your own. Well, that's how the psalmist feels. You know, being alone, I think all of us will know this, being alone can be enormously painful. And maybe right now the loneliness of being stuck on your own in this three weeks of isolation, maybe the loneliness of being with your family and yet Perhaps no one really understands what you're going through. Maybe the loneliness, if you, if you travel on business, of course not right now, but you know what it's like. You can be away for a number of days, a week or two, and apart from one or two meetings, you're on your own. There's almost nothing as lonely as a hotel room. It doesn't matter how expensive it is. You know you're on your own. Or perhaps it's the loneliness of living on your own in a flat, in a shack, in a room, in an apartment, where no amount of TV or music or DVDs can conceal the fact that you're on your own. You may be separated. You may be divorced. You may be grieving. You may be struggling with unrequited love. Well, I think the psalmist has been around. I think the psalmist knows where you are. I think he knows what life is like. Now, a key question as we come to the psalm, and it's quite a shock in a sense, this almost joyless, hopeless, despairing psalm. Is what, is what is actually going on here? What is the psalmist trying to express? What is he trying to teach us? What are we supposed to be learning from this psalm? Well, I think the psalmist is describing real life. He's describing the real world. He's describing the real world for believers. You see, from time to time, Psalm 88 is where, where believers like you and I live, if we're honest. Well, the Bible is honest, enormously honest, never minimizes sin. It never covers up the brokenness of this world. The Bible tells it all as it is, from rape to war to plagues to incest to sexual abuse to government corruption to political intrigue. It's all there. The Bible's world is a world of broken promises, of dashed dreams, of failed expectations. It's a world where bad people prosper and good people suffer. Of course the Bible's world is a familiar world to us. Because that's the world in which we live. So the question which which I'm asking, what on earth is going on here? is that Psalm 88 is really fleshing out Genesis 3, the fall. It's a poetic description of living after the fall. Now, it's not as if we live here every day or every week or every month, but if you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you've lived for any length of time, you will know that this is not unfamiliar territory. From time to time, this is where we live. It's fleshing out what it means to live after the fall and before heaven. Remember Genesis 3? God created our four parents, Adam and Eve, to know him and love him and have a relationship with him. And yet they turned against their creator. They turned against God. They rebelled against him. They said, I don't need you. I don't want you. Get out of my life. That was what was happening in Genesis 3. It was a rejection of God and his authority and his worldview. In fact, what they were saying is, we'll make our own worldview. We'll make our own rules. We'll be our own gods. That's what's happening. And the consequence is the fall. Brokenness comes into our world. Our relationship with God is broken. That's why even this morning you may feel a sense of emptiness. Because you're not right with God. That's why you feel a sense of emptiness. Where did that come from? That came from the fall. Our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with one another was broken. Our relationship with creation was broken. That's why we live in a broken world with floods and tsunamis and tornadoes and viruses. You see, it was monstrous, absolutely monstrous, that the creature rejected the Creator. He gave us talents. He gave us gifts. He gave us our bodies. He gave us blessings. He gave us life. He gave us breath itself. And yet we say to him, get lost. I'm busy. I don't need you. That's why, my dear friends, we live in a broken world, a distorted world. The creature rejected the Creator. So if you really understand Genesis 3, you are not surprised when things go wrong in the world. And right now we see that all around us, and we are not surprised because right in the beginning, the creature rebelled against the Creator and brought brokenness into every, every, every area of life. I have a, I have a family. I'm greatly blessed with a family. I have a home. I have a motor car. I'm the rector of Christchurch Midrand. We have a school. I'm a bishop. Do you know what I spend 80-90% of my time doing? Solving problems. Much like you so the car breaks down then the geyser bursts then my wife and I mis- misunderstand each other then the sound equipment at the church needs fixing then the IT is down then the systems are broken then relationships break down conflict amongst the staff need attention again the IT is down I think there must be a verse in the Bible that that says there's no IT in heaven heaven's perfect. So Genesis 3 helps us to make sense of life. Helps us to make sense of this world. And Psalm 88 is fleshing out Genesis 3. It's fleshing out the fall. Here's the consequences of the creature rebelling against the creator. Let me tell you, there are two things that no other religion or spirituality or faith will teach you. The first is grace. We'll get to that at the end. The second is original sin. In fact, the world, our secular Western world, hates the concept of original sin. But you will never understand the world if you don't understand the fall. You will never understand yourself if you don't understand the fall. You will never understand other people unless you understand Genesis 3. You will never understand the gospel if you don't understand Genesis 3. Paul Tripp he's a great great author any book he writes buy it he's quite brilliant let me quote from Paul Tripp he says I quote we live in a world that has been bent and twisted by a force so fundamental so powerful that it literally impacts every human thought every human intention every situation every experience of society and every moment of history This force is the inescapable pathology of the created universe. It is sin. One word, three letters, and yet a concept without which it is impossible to ever understand the universe. End of quote. Isn't that brilliant? You'll never understand the world. You'll never understand other people. You'll never understand your spouse. You'll never understand your parents, your children. You'll never understand yourself unless you understand original sin, unless you understand the fall, you'll always be puzzled, confused. So Psalm 88 is really just the experience of a genuine believer living and struggling in a broken world. It's not always like this, thankfully. But if you have been a Christian for some time and if you're old enough, you will know sometimes it is like this. And perhaps that's how you feel this morning. Well, I think you're in good company. Paul tells us the same thing, Romans chapter 8. Just turn to Romans 8. If you've got your Bible there, check in the index. If you don't normally look at the Bible or read the Bible, Romans chapter 8, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And he's saying the same thing, but in slightly different words. Romans chapter 8, let me read to you from verse 22. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. I mean, that's just a New Testament fleshing out of Psalm 88. That's just a New Testament fleshing out of Genesis 3. We live in a broken world. Creation itself is groaning, and we are groaning even as Christians who have the Spirit within us waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Now, I hope you're still with me there yes good you can say amen what is absolutely critical for us to understand is this in our larger Christian culture in the worldwide Christian church they no longer teach this stuff what they very often teach is actually a lie it's a false triumphalism Africa is riddled with this false triumphalism, the prosperity gospel. Which says if you have enough faith, if you if you have enough prayer, if you give enough, then you ought to live a victorious Christian life. No problems, no struggling, no pain. Always smiling. In fact if you're not smiling, if you're suffering, if you have pain, it's because you don't have enough faith or you haven't given enough seed money. It's a lie. The author of Psalm 88, the sons of Korah, would say, my goodness me, where did you get that? Are you smoking something? Listen to Joel Osteen, well-known author, pastor of the biggest megachurch in America and Texas. He says this, I quote. I quote from one of his books. He says, we have a right to total victory. I want you to get that. Not partial victory to where we have a good family, we have good health, but we constantly struggle with our finances. That's not total victory. God created you to be totally free, to have peace in your mind, to walk in divine health, to have good relationships, to have plenty to pay your bills. God created us as victors and not victims. Know who you are, the seed of Abraham. You have rights and privileges. One of those privileges is total victory, end of quote. And the sons of Chorus say, what? It's a lie. It's not true. I'm sure he, well, he did say this before the coronavirus. I wonder what he's saying now. Because in that quote that I've just given you, there's no understanding of the fall. There's no understanding of the doctrine of sin, which of course means that if you don't have a have a proper doctrine of sin, you won't have a proper doctrine of the atonement, of the substitutionary death of Christ. You're going to get it wrong. So according to the Gospel of Joel Osteen or T.B. Joshua or Kenneth Copeland, they tell us that Christ had come, Christ has died to give us good health, to give us wealth, to give us success, to motivate us, a good self-image. My dear friends, that is absolute nonsense. That is a lie. God may well bless you with good health. God may well bless you with resources. God may well bless you in many different ways, but that is not why Christ came, and that is certainly not why Christ died. No, he came to rescue us from sin, our sin, original sin. He came to rescue us from the wrath of God. He came to rescue us from the brokenness of this world. You see, I don't, I don't for one moment think that Kenneth Hagin or T.B. Joshua would have the sons of Korah on their TV show. Do you think they would? I mean, we don't, we don't need this negative stuff. We don't need this melancholy, depressing stuff. We need something positive, motivational, upbeat. I mean, if we have the sons of Korah, we're going to drop in the ratings. And what will happen to, the, to our donations? No, 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 tell the sons of Korah to find another channel. Seems to me that there wouldn't be much place for Genesis 3 or Psalm 88 on TBN, which makes you wonder. So what's the big picture? God created this world. There was no sin, no suffering, no disease, no death, no pain. Genesis 3, the creature rejects the Creator. He rebels against his Creator. And brokenness enters into every part of the world. The rest of the Bible is really the second half of the Bible God's rescue attempt to save us and rescue us from ourselves. That's the story of the rest of the Bible. Redemption. How God sent His Son to redeem us from our brokenness. Remember Romans 8.23. Salvation comes in two parts. When you put your faith and trust in Christ now, you are adopted into his family, you are regenerated, you are justified, you are saved, but you are still living with a broken body and other broken bodies in a broken world. You are still groaning in the pains of childbirth with the whole of creation. The second part of salvation is not when you are in this world, but when you are in heaven. And only then will we have perfect health and perfect happiness and perfect joy because there will no longer be the curse And we will be with Jesus, not by faith, but face to face. So while we wait for the second part of salvation, as saved people, regenerated people, redeemed people, we still live in this broken world with broken bodies. We still live in Psalm 88. Psalm 88, one could almost say, is the normal Christian life. It's not always like that, but it is normal to Christians. It's the experience of godly Christians awaiting heaven or the return of Christ. So that's the first point, by far the longest, a grief suffered. Let's quickly have a look at a grief born. Important to remember that the Old Testament is not only a record, God's record, God's inspired record of his dealings with his people, with the nation of Israel, But it's also a pointer to the coming Messiah, to the coming Savior, who will ultimately, finally rescue his people. So a key question we must ask of any passage in the Bible or passage in the Old Testament is what does it teach us about Jesus? So we need to ask that question about Psalm 88. What does it teach us about Christ? You see, to understand the Bible, you need to ask the right questions. Remember, after the resurrection of Christ, and we'll be dealing with that obviously next week on Easter Sunday, but after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room. You remember there? They were were in the upper room. they 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 were scared. They were terrified. They were fearful, cowering in the upper room, and then Jesus just appears. He just walked through a wall. Don't try that at home or school or anywhere else, by the way. And you remember he opened up the Scriptures to the disciples and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. Extraordinary statement. He explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. So he walks through the Old Testament and he says... There's a picture of me. There's a picture of me. When you read about the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, it's a picture of Jesus. When you read about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, that's a picture of Jesus. When you read about Genesis 22, where, where Abraham is just about to strike Isaac on the mountain, it's a picture of Jesus. When you read about the priest and the high priest, that's a picture of Jesus. Jesus. When you read about the temple, about the tabernacle, that's a picture of Jesus. So the question is, what does Psalm 88 teach us about Jesus? Some of you are looking a little bit puzzled because there's no word word of Jesus here in this psalm. Where on earth is Martin going to find Jesus? And yet, as soon as you ask that question it's almost obvious. You see, Psalm 88, I would think, were the cries and prayers of Jesus before the cross and on the cross. Jesus would have known the Psalms backwards. Isn't verse 3 to 5 a prayer he would have prayed in the garden of Gethsemane? For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Aren't those words that he could have prayed in the garden? Verse 6 and 7, couldn't that have been a cry he would have uttered while hanging on the cross? You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath, notice there, verse 7 your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Same thing, verse 13. Is that not an Old Testament version of the words of Jesus on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When God poured his wrath upon Christ, which he didn't deserve, the perfect son of God, who had no sin, he was punished in my place, in your place. Remember whose cross he occupied. Someone else was meant to be on that cross. Someone else was meant to die that death. Someone else was meant to die the agonizing and take that last breath. His name was Barabbas. You see, when Jesus died on the cross... He died for the sins of people like you and me. He died in our place. He died on our behalf. He quenched the wrath of God and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What that means, my dear brother and sister, is that you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. The Gospels tell us that the 120, the 12, even Peter deserted him at Calvary. Everyone. Isn't that what, we, what was prophesied here, verse 8? You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Isn't that what we read in verse 18? You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And again, verse 18... Lord Jesus looks around, his friends, his companions, his loved ones have all deserted him. Even, even even God has deserted him. He looks around and there's only one friend left, and his name is Darkness. And darkness is his closest friend. And in Matthew chapter 27 verse 45 we read that darkness came over all the land from the sixth to the ninth hour. It's quite stunning, isn't it? Psalm 88 is really about the cross. It's the prayers of Jesus on the cross. How appropriate for us to look at Psalm 88, the week before Easter. Let me close and say the experiences, the emotions of Psalm 88 are the experiences, the emotions of Christ on the cross. This is how much he loves you. That's what it's telling us. This is what he went through to save you. This is what he he did to save you. It's almost unbelievable. You may be in the depths of sin or despair. You may be struggling with all kinds of emotions right now during this time of isolation. You may feel extreme loneliness well, here's the God for you. He's been here. He knows what it's like. He knows perfectly what it's like. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he did all of this for you. For for you. Wouldn't today be a good day to come to him and trust in him? Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. Won't you take this time to, to tell God where you are to call on him for mercy? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the honesty of your word. We thank you for the way the word feeds us and washes us and comforts us and heals us. But Lord, we also thank you for, for the cross Lord, it's beyond belief what you went through for people like us. There may be someone here this morning who may want to turn to you and say, Oh God, will you have mercy on me? Will you rescue me? Because of what you did for me on the cross, will you make me a Christian? And Father, we thank you that when we call upon you in our brokenness, with all our questions and doubts, but when we call on you for mercy, that you hear and you answer. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.